I want to welcome you all this morning <clears throat> to Redemption Hill Church. We had a huge group of people here on Christmas Eve, and then you are the faithful few who aren't traveling and aren't sick and don't have family plans this morning, and I'm so glad that you've come to worship Jesus Christ with us this morning. As you all know, we are at the tail end of a really special time of year uh, where we, we take time to celebrate the birth of Jesus and the incarnation. But as you all know, which is why you're here this morning, Jesus is the focus of our faith, and he is to be the focus of our worship all year round, not just on Christmas. So our rejoicing in Christ's first coming is supposed to be paired with this eager anticipation, an anticipation for his second coming. So what we're going to do this morning is continue celebrating Jesus Christ and we're going to be looking towards his second advent. Jesus came the first time in humility. He came as a baby. But the second time he comes, he will come in glory. And the Psalms furnish us with language to worship this king, the king of glory. I want to invite you to turn this morning in your Bibles to Psalm 24. I'm always eager when we have little nooks and crannies in our preaching schedule to return to the Psalms. It's one of my favorite books. It's a book packed with beautiful, poetic, doctrinal truth, but it also gives us proper emotional language to describe our God and to respond to him. And Psalm 24 will be our text this morning. I'm going to read it for you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the, wa- the, the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I want to echo those words of the 23rd Psalm that we sang just a few minutes ago. We believe that you are our shepherd and you will supply all our need. Lord, our need this morning is to behold your glory. Our need this morning is to have our love for Christ deepened, strengthened, broadened, intensified. Lord, we pray that as we go from here, after having walked through this beautiful song that you gave us in your word, that our hearts would burn with love for Christ, that we would have a clearer sight of your glory, and that our faith would be strengthened, and that we would be moved towards worship and fear and faith and obedience. I pray that you would meet my need, that you would strengthen me, strengthen my voice, as I seek to share the message that you have given in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This psalm, this song, is a liturgical psalm. 
meaning that it was composed to be used on special occasions. It was a processional type song. It was written to be used for some sort of grand entrance. And, you know, biblical scholars sort of study through this and try to, we try to read between the lines and figure out when was this written and what occasion was it written for. And there's a couple different options, but it seems likely that this song was penned for that occasion when King David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. If you remember, before the temple was built in Jerusalem, there was a tabernacle. If you've been with us over the last year, you know a little bit about that. We've talked about the tabernacle, that tent that Moses built, and it was sort of a mobile temple. And after they entered into the land of Canaan, that tabernacle was parked in a few different places during the time of the judges, during the reign of Saul, who was Israel's first king. But David conquered the Jebusite city that was called Jerusalem. He captured it, and he decided that he was going to set up his throne there in Jerusalem. He would make it the capital city, and it would become the center of life and politics and the center of worship for the nation Israel. David's son Solomon would build the temple there in Jerusalem. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in this grand procession. There's dancing, there's celebration. And so as we read Psalm 24, and we see that especially the language of verses 7 through 10, it seems very fitting. That certainly would have been a fitting occasion for this psalm to be written and then to be sung as sort of an, a liturgical psalm. But this psalm has also been used by the church throughout history as an ascension psalm, celebrating the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven after his resurrection. So, and that's the beautiful thing about these psalms, is though they are written for one occasion, they have many uses. They can be used in different contexts. And so when we think about how Jesus completed the mission that was given to him by his Father, how he lived a perfect life, how he carried his cross, he died for sinners, and then rose again, we know the story in Acts chapter 1 how Jesus ascends into the clouds and we're told that Jesus then entered into the heavenly temple and he was seated at the right hand of the Father. That sort of brings a whole new light to this song, a whole new, whole new occasion in which it would be fitting to sing, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. But I also think this song helps us to anticipate another occasion, the return of Jesus Christ, that great day when he will appear in glory to establish his kingdom in power, the day when every eye will see him, the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that day in which all his enemies will be placed under his feet and he will establish his throne on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But in any case, no matter which occasion you have in view, this song provides some powerful imagery and it contains some very important theological truths, truths that help us to worship Jesus Christ as the King of glory. This is a psalm that should be read, that should be memorized, that should be meditated on because it will help us to contemplate who Jesus is and what our response to him should be. So what I'd like to do in our time together this morning is share with you three truths about the king of glory. Number one, in verses one through two, the king of glory is the transcendent creator. 
The king of glory is the transcendent creator. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I think there's a reason that the Bible starts in Genesis with the story of creation. It starts with the story of creation, not just because that's where our own history starts, but because that's the first thing that you and I need to know about God. We need to know him as he is, and to know God as he is means recognizing him first and foremost as the creator. This is a statement here in verses 1 and 2, saying that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, because, verse 2, he founded it. This is a statement of his transcendence. It tells us that God is above and outside and over the creation. He is the pre-existent, unmade maker, the supreme God over all. This is a statement of his power, that the earth is the Lord's because he made it. Only God can create, and he has created all things. There's nothing in the universe that can claim to exist apart from his power. He made it all. Which means that this is also a statement of his authority. That those who live in this world live under his rule. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Fullness refers to everything that's in the earth. And then he, the, the psalmist expands this idea to even clarify it further. The world and those who dwell therein. Everyone who lives, lives underneath God's rule and his authority. It's his. He owns it all. Everything is his because he made it. But I'd like to point out something to you that may not be as easy to see as we read this in English because we're not ancient Hebrews. Uh, We're not ancient Hebrew people. Um, But I think this statement in verses one and two, talking about God as creator, is also a statement of defiance. Here's what I mean by that. This statement defies all other claims to power and authority. These are fighting words. To declare these words, to sing this song, that the earth is the Lord's, Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. To sing this song is to put everyone on notice that they are accountable to this God, that he rules over them. And here's the thing, not everybody's excited about that message. The psalmist uses the words here in verse 2, the seas and the rivers, He has founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers, talking about God's work of creation. And the psalmist does this for a reason. You see, the Canaanites worshipped and deified these forces of nature. They considered them to be powerful gods of the underworld. They worshipped the prince sea, the Hebrew word yam. They worshipped judge river, nahar. But the psalmist knows better. He knows that the rivers and the seas are no gods. And he turns the beliefs of the pagan world on their head. The faithful worshipers of Yahweh, those in Israel who would have sung this song, they know that the rivers and the seas are just building blocks that God has used in his sovereign creative purposes. God's sovereignty over the waters is seen in Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 1, we're told the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Because the earth at that point was still without form and was void or or empty. 
We're told, furthermore, in Genesis 1, that God separated the waters, that God gathered the waters together, that God caused dry land to appear in the midst of the waters. He's sovereign over the waters. Later, God would demonstrate his sovereign power in sending the flood in Noah's day. God controls the waters. He would part the Red Sea in Moses' day. He would part the Jordan River for Joshua and his armies. So when the psalmist pens these words that he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, that it all belongs to him, that he makes it, he owns it, he rules over it, the psalmist is declaring that no other God can compete with Yahweh. No other God compares. In affirming this truth about the one true God, he is defying all the counterfeit gods of his day. There's nothing that exists that isn't made by God. He owns it, he rules it, because he made it. Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah unpacks this theology in Jeremiah 10.10. He says, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his storehouses." Listen, to know this God as he really is, is to know that he's no merely local deity. He's not just the God of the river, or the God of the seas, or the sun God, or the God of the harvests. He is more than just the God of Israel. The whole earth is his. And the supposed jurisdiction of these other gods, the power that they supposedly wield, The psalmist knows that's just raw material that the true God created and used. The king of glory is the transcendent creator who rules and reigns over all. And here's the amazing thing. All of this is seen explicitly in the New Testament as applying directly to Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us that Jesus was the word that he is with God, that he is God, that he was in the beginning with God and that all things were made through him. And without him, without Jesus Christ, was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter one tells us, by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the transcendent God, the one who rules and reigns over all. He has creator rights and the authority to rule. Therefore, only Jesus is worthy of fear and worship. Only Jesus is supreme. That's how the psalmist starts off this song, declaring with with gratitude, with awe, but also with an attitude of defiance towards the counterfeit gods, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all his because he made it. And if that is true, if that's who this God is, 
It actually raises a very crucial question, a question that gets asked in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? You see, not only is the king of glory the transcendent creator, but secondly, we need to understand this morning that the king of glory is perfectly holy. He is perfectly holy. This is the crucial question. Who can come? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? To ascend the hill gives imagery, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, of Mount Sinai, that mountain where God manifested his presence at the top of that mountain. Remember, that's where Israel saw his glory. And we know that no one was allowed to come up except Moses at that moment. This imagery also reminds us of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the place where the temple would be built. If you were anywhere in Israel, to go to the temple meant going up because you had to go up the hill to the city of Jerusalem to where the temple was. And both Mount Zion in Jerusalem and Mount Sinai in the desert were symbols of God's heavenly dwelling, the place where his glory dwells in unapproachable light. So whether you're talking about Mount Sinai or Jerusalem, Mount Zion where the temple was, or whether you're talking about heaven itself, the question is always, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? As Charles Spurgeon points out, it is uphill work for the creator to reach, the, or for the creation. I'm, I'm struggling today. I'm going to read this again. Sorry, Mr. Spurgeon. Here's the quote. It is uphill work for the creature to reach the creator. See, isn't that a great quote? Would have been awesome to read it clean. <laughs> but it's always uphill work. He's right. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? That's the crucial question. If he's the transcendent creator, who can come? But the concern is twofold. Notice he says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's to climb. That's to, to reach the top. And then the second line even adds another flavor. And who shall stand in his holy place? It's one thing to reach the summit. It's another thing to stand there. To stand has the idea of being accepted to be accepted into God's presence and to remain there. Who can ascend and who can stand in his presence? This is always the most pressing question for all men. The question is not whether or not you are a good person compared to other people. That's how most of us like to frame the question. How, how do I measure up compared to the other people in my dorm or compared to my neighbor? or compared to my coworkers, compared to those people I see on TV, compared to these other people in the church. But that's not the question. How do we compare to the holy God? Can we ascend the hill to where he is and stand in his holy presence? Can you stand before the face of God? Here's the answer to who can come and who can stand. Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Here's the answer. Those who can ascend the hill and stand before God are the pure. Clean hands refers to our actions, refers to our deeds. The psalmist knows our hands must be clean. We must be pure. We must be holy. We must be morally acceptable to God our life, our deeds, our actions 
must be in line with his righteous character as it has been revealed in his perfect law. That's what it means to have clean hands. It means you're not guilty. There's no stain. There's no dirt. There's no pollution of sin. But it's not just clean hands. He says you also need a pure heart. The pure heart refers to our inner thoughts, our desires, our motives, the reasons why we do what we do. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As Jesus told the Pharisees, he's not impressed by those who are outwardly righteous, even whitewashed, but inside are as rotten as a tomb. You see, we must be holy inside and out. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This holiness is further explained in the second half of verse four. The guy with a, or the, the gal with, a clean, with clean hands and a pure heart, verse four, does not lift up their soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. What does that mean? This describes one whose worship is pure, who does not lift up their soul to what is false, false gods, false ideas, self, sin, any of those things. This describes the person who puts their trust in God alone, who fears God alone, who worships God alone. A divided heart is displeasing to God. You can't ride the fence. James chapter four tells us, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't lift up your soul to what is false and expect to enter into the presence of the Lord and be accepted there. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In addition to pure worship, not lifting up your soul to what is false, the one who is accepted in God's presence must be someone who has perfect integrity. It says that he does not swear deceitfully at the end of verse four. There are echoes here in this verse of the Ten Commandments. Pure worship, that we worship God alone, that's not having any other gods before him. And then not swearing deceitfully, there's no bearing false witness. It's almost like he's, he's trying to get us to remember those Ten Commandments, saying that, listen, in short, the one accepted by God must have a pure heart, reflecting God's character, and a pure life that keeps God's law. What that means is that it's not enough, friend, to have a bulletproof theology, to have correct doctrine, to have razor-sharp understanding of truth, but have dirty hands. Likewise, it's not enough just to do lots of good deeds, you know, to give money and to help the needy and to be kind and to serve. You also need a pure heart. You need holy thoughts. Unpolluted motives. 
You see, God's standard is perfect holiness inside and out. So the question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who meets this standard? Who has clean hands? Who has a pure heart? Well, not you and not me. None of us do. No one does. Psalm 130, verse 3, asks this question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. No one. But here's the good news. And I think we see the good news not by flipping to a different page in the Bible. We see it right here in Psalm 24. Here's the good news. The one who requires righteousness from us also provides righteousness for us. Look in verse five. It says of the one who stands in the presence of the Lord that he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The picture of one who is holy and pure, who receives divine blessing, also receives righteousness. This is the person, according to verse six, who seeks God. And I want you to notice here in verse six that the word seek is used two different times, at least in the ESV. Maybe you have something different in your lap, but the ESV translates two different words in the Hebrew into one word in English. So we have a repetition of the word seek, but in Hebrew, it's two different words. The first is just a standard verb of to seek with great care, to look for something very carefully. But the second line of verse 6, when it says, those who seek the face of the God of Jacob, is a different word for seek, and it's in the intensive form. So again, this is where if you and I were fluent in Hebrew, we would see the, the beauty of the poetry here, that it's not just repetition for repetition's sake. There's a development in the second line of verse 6 that intensifies this idea of seeking, and that's meant to show us that seeking God intensively seeking after him is the thing that matters. It's a poetic and vivid description of the person who devotes themselves to seeking and knowing God. Verse six says, those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. To seek his face means to seek his favor. You know the, the blessing that you've probably heard from the Old Testament. You've heard people say it. The Lord be gracious and bless us and make his what? Make his face shine upon us. That's a description of grace, of favor. To speak that blessing over someone is to, is to desire for God to bless them, to show grace and mercy to them. So this person who seeks the face of God is seeking his favor. The one who receives righteousness and blessing is the one who seeks grace. And I love it how how the psalmist here points us to this name, Jacob, the God of Jacob. You remember the story of Jacob? Jacob is not somebody you would characterize as having clean hands or a pure heart. He's not somebody that you would characterize as not swearing deceitfully. He's famous for lying, famous for deceiving his father, cheating his brother. He's not an example of morality and purity and holiness. But there's a story of Jacob that's even more famous than his lying. And that's when he met God and he wrestled with God. 
and he insistently would not let him go until he blessed him. He was seeking the favor, the face, the grace, the blessing of God tenaciously. And we know the story that even though God dislocated his hip to end that wrestling match, he did bless him. He blessed him. This hints at good news for us. It's good news for us. Listen, no one meets the perfect standard of holiness. None of us do. But those who know their need for grace, those who know the standard and we know how far short we fall, if we will seek the Lord's face, if we will intently pursue him to lay hold by faith of the grace and mercy that he provides, we can receive, according to verse five, blessing from the Lord and receive righteousness from the Lord. This righteousness is vindication. It's a status of being declared not guilty. It is what the New Testament refers to as justification through faith in Christ. You see, none of us meet the standard of holiness, but Jesus does. In his life, he had clean hands. Jesus had a pure heart. And in his life and death, Jesus does two things for us. He not only fulfills the law on our behalf, filling up a treasury of merit, an infinite supply of righteousness, but then he also atones for our sin on the cross. And as Jesus sheds his blood, he offers cleansing for those who have dirty hands and a corrupted heart. He washes us. In Christ, those who are unclean, those who are impure, those who are unholy, we can have our sins erased and we can be granted the status of righteousness in God's sight. The amazing good news is that the judge of all the earth is just, but he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 3.26 tells us. If I could quote Spurgeon one more time, he comments on this verse, they do not ascend the hill of the Lord as givers, but as receivers. They do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness which they have received. You see, God shows grace to those who seek him. What does it mean to seek? To seek the face of God requires repenting of our sin turning away from sin, turning away from self, and pointing ourselves towards Christ, and then believing, laying hold of his promises by faith. That's what it means to seek him. It's to repent and believe. There's no other way. The king of glory is perfectly holy, but the good news is that he provides for us what he requires from us. He requires that we be holy, that we be pure, that we be righteous, but the good news is he is able to make us so. And if we will seek the face of the God of Jacob, we will receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of salvation. He will make our hands clean, make our hands pure. The king of glory is the transcendent creator. He's also perfectly holy. And then finally, the king of glory is coming in triumph. Verses seven through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? 
The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. As we noted earlier, this section may speak to the carrying of the ark into Jerusalem. The king of glory is strong and mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts, meaning that he is the leader of Israel's armies and the leader of heaven's armies. And he triumphs over the Canaanites. He triumphs over their gods. He fulfills his covenant promises to bless Israel and make them great and establish them in the land. So the ancient Israelites would have sang this song with the view of his victory, his triumph in battle over their enemies in the land. But as we noted, this psalm has also been used to celebrate the ascension of Jesus into heaven following his resurrection. In that light, it declares the glory of Christ as the one who is mighty in battle, the one who has triumphed not just over the Canaanites, but over sin and death fulfilling the Father's will for our redemption. And it summons every angel in heaven to stand to attention and it calls the gates of the heavenly temple to get ready to receive the King of glory, the one who is now risen from the dead as he makes his way into the heavenly throne room. Jesus is the triumphant high priest who enters into the throne room on the merits of his own perfect sacrifice and he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. What an awesome song to sing, to celebrate the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think we can also read these words, this call to celebration, this call to prepare to receive the King. We can read these words in light of his coming, the second advent. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a little bit of a longer text, a few verses that I want you to, to see with me. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 24. In verse 23, the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus' coming and the resurrection. In verse 24, he says, following that, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And verse 28 tells us, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The Apostle Paul looks forward to this great and glorious, triumphant consummation. He knows that Jesus is coming back, and it will be a triumphant return. It will be a personal return. Jesus is coming here, bodily, in the flesh, and it will be a glorious return. Every eye will see him. It's going to light up the sky. The king of glory is the creator and the ruler over all. And not only can we go to him because of his grace, but he's also coming to us. 
He's coming to us, and we must prepare for his arrival. We've been celebrating Christmas over the last several weeks. Some of us are still celebrating Christmas. We're going this afternoon to see some family. We've been thinking a lot about the first advent. The people of Israel waited for their king to come. Old man Simeon waiting in the temple. The elderly woman Anna, the prophetess, waiting in the temple to see the Messiah. We find John the Baptist coming and preaching a message, telling the people, prepare the way, get ready, because someone is coming whose sandal straps I'm not even worthy to untie. Hear this, Jesus Christ is coming soon. And this is either the best news ever to you, or it's a warning, depending on your spiritual condition today. If the gates are to get ready and prepare, if the ancient doors are to accommodate themselves to the arrival of this king of glory, how much more ought we to be ready and prepared for his coming? Only the holy will be accepted in his presence. Only those who seek him will receive blessing and righteousness instead of judgment. Perhaps God is calling you today to seek his face to turn from your sin, and to lay hold of the promises of the gospel by faith. That's what you need to do to prepare for his coming. But for those of us who are already standing in this grace, those of us who have been declared righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross, because we believed in the promise of the gospel, we are anticipating and preparing for a celebration. The coming of Jesus, when considered by his enemies, that's a day of war, a day of judgment. But for his people, when Jesus comes, it's a reunion. It is a wedding feast. It is pure joy. The king of glory comes into the city to the sound of the songs and the shouts of celebration by those who have been eagerly awaiting his return. So let me ask you, is that where your heart is today? Does this refrain resonate with you, this song, Psalm 24? Does it heighten your anticipation? Does it fill you with confidence? You see, the one who is strong and mighty, the one who triumphs over his enemies, he invites us to share in the celebration of his victory over sin and death and hell. And there has never been a party anything like it. May our hearts today be lifted up and our voices join the chorus as we shout the triumphant song, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, our savior, Jesus Christ, the risen son of God. He is the king of glory. We await his return. We anticipate it with joy. And as we praise him with these words, we're also supposed to tell the world, get ready. Prepare the way, because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming soon. That's why we go tell it on the mountain that not only has the king been born, but the king is coming back. He will be here. Are you ready to stand in his presence? Have you been made clean, made pure, washed by the blood of Christ? If not, then today is the day when he calls you to seek his face, to trust in his son, and to receive the favor, the grace, the mercy of the great King 
of glory. Would you bow with me and pray? Lord Jesus, we marvel to think at your glory and also your grace and your goodness towards us. There's not one of us in here that on our own can stand in your presence. We're all guilty of sin. But we're so thankful that the God we serve is not only just and holy and righteous, he's also merciful and has provided for us what he requires. Lord, may we remember today that any righteousness we possess is received. It's a gift from you. We stand in your presence on no merit of our own. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's on Christ, the solid rock, that we stand. And it's Christ that we worship today. Lord Jesus, as we've celebrated your birth this month, may we enter into a new year celebrating you every day, rejoicing in your glory, confident in your promises. You alone are worthy of our fear, our trust, our obedience. May our hearts be devoted to you. May we love you more today as we've walked through this psalm. We thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your spirit, for how you have fed your sheep today and directed us into the green pastures to feed us with the rich truth of Christ and his glory. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.